Hello everyone and welcome to the Debug Log episode 65. This week we're going to discuss making stuff look good and to do that we're going to have help from our friend Dan Moran who runs the uh, Making Stuff Look Good channel on YouTube. Now Dan's a bit of a visual uh, effects expert and uh, Obina and I worked with him over at Sprockets and uh, he's really fun to talk to and knows a lot. Uh, we're going to be talking about stuff about how he got started, sort of his languages, platforms, tools, you know, roles on interacting with the team. Um, you know, and just his, his approach to problems. So uh, he's a great fount of knowledge for this type of stuff. And, uh, you know, if you want to have any ideas about, you know, how to get started, you know, with visual effects or shader programming, he's the guy to talk to. And he'll also help you with some of your effects if you ask nicely, I bet. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Making Stuff Look Good, Episode 65. Thanks. And, and this, uh, do you do the typical... Um the podcast thing where guests don't say a word until they are introduced. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we'll do our what whole is, intro. That convention. So um, shut up. Yeah. Know your place. Speak your place. Know your place. Know my place. All right. and welcome back to another episode of the debug log this week we'll be looking into making stuff look good so we'll be talking about sort of like graphics creating image effects uh for video games and just like you know graphics programming in general and today on the show we have uh myself uh mr obino apara and our guest dan moran hi dan hey hey thanks for being on the show (laughs) thanks for having me Yes. That introduction was not as as fantastic as I wanted because <laughs> you know a lot of our uh, debug. I don't know if you know this, Dan, but a lot of our uh, loungers on the debug log uh, that listen to you, they know about your show, the YouTube oh. series, making stuff look good in Unity. Uh, and so we finally managed to snag this guy and talk about uh, shaders, talk about Unity, yeah. talk about what he's been doing on his end as well. So yeah. Awesome. I, I don't think it, it didn't, we didn't need a more spectacular intro. That was, that was, that was great, Ryan. <laughs> was, Thank you. I was hoping for a humble man. fireworks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm a humble yeah. man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. No, but no, yeah, absolutely. Dan's great. And yeah, you should, guys should totally check out his YouTube uh, channel, Making Stuff Look Good. But um, I, without further ado, Dan, tell us some stuff about yourself. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, how about the, uh, the uh, sort of origin story, I guess, is a good place to start. Um, yeah, go for it. So I, I've been doing graphics programming. Um, as a sort of hobby and uh, with any other game I've been working on, I've always been interested in the uh, the shaders and graphics rendering side of things. Um, and I, I noticed a year about a year ago, a sort of uh, niche on subreddits um, and areas of the internet forums and stuff like that, where people didn't seem to have a very deep knowledge of shaders and graphics, or at least not as deep as the the little that I knew at the time. Uh, so I started making these videos, these uh, making stuff look good in Unity. Um, teaching people shaders and some basic tricks for particles and image effects and stuff like that. Um, and that has kind of got my name out there as a graphics programmer in the world. Um, and it's been uh, a great boon to my career to be a, a sort of a known graphics programmer and kind of, I mean, it got me my job at Sprockets effectively. So. Um, <laughs> So, quick question: Like, what even like before the YouTube and the, and the subreddits? Like, what made you get excited about games in general? Like, how did you even start with games? Like, why uh, not you know databases or something? Why not or databases? Something well, yeah. So, so I, I in my third year at university, there certainly was the choice between a databases uh, course um, and a uh, 
software it was called like software design but it was specifically for for uh, game design patterns uh, and it was all taught in xna uh, and given that choice um <laughs> Rest in peace, games was yeah <laughs> well yeah uh, but games was certainly the more interesting option than um than xna um the professor of that course i later went on uh went on to work with he had a, uh, a lab on the campus where they made an exercise video game for kids with cerebral palsy. Uh, and so I, after my undergrad, took the lead on that project. And I was um, a designer, artist, full stack developer. <laughs> so. Oh, right on. Yeah, you mentioned XNA. I know that's like Andrew's, uh, that's his like go-to. He always talks about his XNA project in pre- Practically like ninety percent of our episodes, y'all there. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I honestly, uh, I missed the, the technology. I thought it was decent for the time, but uh, that's a whole other subject. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, what well, about speaking of technology and uh, just like you know, skill sets? Uh, what are yours? What are some of the languages and platforms and tools you use day to day? Yeah. So, um, C Sharp and XNA was um, sort of my first real foray into things. Before that, I was using Flash and ActionScript, but never, never to anything. Uh, very advanced. Um, once I hit Unity, though, I already had a little bit of know-how in C Sharp from my days in XNA, and I I just kind of hit the ground running. And ever since then, I've been kind of just drinking the Unity Kool Aid, uh, getting really used to that environment, that that entire development uh, ecosystem. Uh, and now that's that's just my wheelhouse. I mean, I, I've I've dabbled in Unreal, I've dabbled in other engines and uh, frameworks, but day to day, Unity is kind of my jam now. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, it's actually. Go ahead. Sorry, I was just wondering, like, why, why Unity? Because you know, especially when you're, you're, you know, have this background of, you know, graphics programming and all about, you know, what makes, you know, what really or how you make things look really good. I think Unreal has kind of had that, that staple of being the pretty engine. Mm. Uh, why did you, or even CryEngine, I guess, before Unity? Why did you choose Unity? So. Crytek and Unreal look very nice out of box, and that's what they've always had as their sort of advantage on Unity. You know, you you put you put a terrain on the ground and some objects, whatever, some PBR nice assets. You throw those down, and it just it looks better in those engines. I, I mean, I just got to give it to them on those. Um, but Unity to me has always been the more flexible. You know, you can write a shader to look exactly like those. Unreal assets. It might not be there at a box, um, but you can do that, and you can do so much more. You can do very um, non-photorealistic rendering. I think Unity has the advantage uh, there. It's just it's a very easy system to start dabbling in shaders, start dabbling in, in rendering, and kind of make, um, like I said, non-photorealistic rendering, which has kind of been where where I've where I've been um, specializing. <clears throat> cool. Okay, you mentioned actually uh, in one of the aspects of some of the what the engines can do. You mentioned PBR for the layman. What is that? Okay, okay. so physically based rendering is just sort of the uh, the hot in vogue uh, way of rendering things. It, it's really just it kind of boils down to uh, a couple of mathematical functions that that have act- actually existed for years, like since the eighties, and then some work in the in the early two thousands. Um, but basically, it's just a way of defining um, how uh, your your main inputs of your your color of your object and the light coming into it uh, how that how that results in pixels on the screen with nice specular reflections and and you know samples from an environment map in a way that looks uh, whatever it, it can be reflective or it can be very rough and coarse um, and really it is just it, it's kind of like this plug and play it's not really this crazy advanced 
topic that everybody thinks it is. It's actually really is just these math functions you can plug in different values to and get PBR on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> okay so, so it's formulaic is what you're saying okay yeah uh, yeah it really is just you know it's several inputs of light direction view direction normal direction and then it spits out pixels and it's you know you can get more complicated than that you can get down to the finite math or whatever that is involved behind uh, deriving those equations but most of us are are interested in making games we're not interested in doing the advanced mathematics behind uh lighting right. equations so right from our perspective, it's very much just a plug-and-play solution. Gotcha. Cool. cool. You mentioned, like, uh, with Unity being, you said not use, you kind of turn to a Unity for the non-PBR type workflow, whereas, mm-hmm. you know, Crytek and Unreal was, you know, really heavily focused or at least catered to that PBR workflow. So would you, is that actually the reason you think a lot of like maybe mobile games, low-end mobile games are are stylized, and let me not say low-end, stylized mobile (laughs) games are usually coming from the Unity wheelhouse? Or is there another reason? Like, is do you think that trending is because of that, I guess, catering to PBR versus non-PBR workflows with the engines? Um, I, I actually suspect that the reason so many mobile games are developed in Unity is purely the the first to market aspect of of Unity. I mean, it, it had cross platform compilation, you know, to twenty different build targets since early Unity four, maybe late Unity three, mm-hmm. um, and Unreal eventually got there as well, and it's there now. Um, but I think people still kind of think of Unity as the, you know. I just want simple 3D lit uh, uh, crossy road frogs and cars and crap like that. Uh, It's very, very easy to get that stuff on the screen and on an iPad screen, more importantly, uh, in Unity. Still definitely much easier than it is to do that in Unreal or certainly Crytek. So between all these like engines and platforms, do you find any difficulty moving in between them? Or is it just like, you know, hey, same skill set, you just got to interface with the tool a different way? Uh, it definitely is the same skill set. Un- Unreal does tend to be more node-based, um, and, and there are node-based editors for shaders and graphics in Unity, Shader Forge being the most popular one, whereas uh, in Unreal, that's the default, uh, and actually writing, uh, hand-authoring GLSL shader code is is not what you would do. You would use their node-based system. Any- anybody who can write uh, a shader, who can hand-write one, can use a node diagram editor to you know produce similar results uh but that doesn't that's not vice versa so a lot of people who learn to author shaders via nodes they might not necessarily be able to handwrite them right i guess there's i'm assuming some overhead that comes with the node-based approach too right it's like since it's sort of like automated and visual a lot of times mm-hmm. there's probably some excess i'm guessing right uh, certainly with shader forge um at sprockets in oh, particular yeah. I, i've yeah I've, I've seen it i've seen it uh used and abused um it, it doesn't it does not produce mobile optimized uh shader code and for that matter it doesn't it doesn't produce optimized shader code i mean just because you're running on a pc doesn't mean you want to waste time doing kind of kind of stupid things that they do in their shaders um what what unreal's material editor does under the hood i can't say for sure they they claim it's producing optimized nice code and that their compiler is 
you know, producing beautiful shader code that's as good as handwritten and hand optimized. But I, I guarantee you any industry expert of graphics and rendering will have something to say about that. We'll probably turn their nose up at that idea. Gotcha. <laughs> this might be a little beyond the scope, but uh, as far as like Shader Forge uh, and the node based systems, do you, I guess in your experience, is it the, is the problem with the author author of the you know shader that's done in shader forge or is it like some of the core calculations that are being that's happening behind these nodes that's maybe the 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 real problem the real culprit for the non-optimized shaders uh so it's both (laughs) um definitely you you can lay down a, a series of nodes um, that as, as you're authoring them, you're like, oh yeah, this is good. And it's giving me the exact, you know, it, it has this visual output the whole time. And what you're seeing is what you wanted to achieve. So you're like, oh, I must be doing it right. Um, but there's, there could be a very, a much simpler path that, you know, you're using eight nodes and you maybe could have done it in two. Um, and, and the code certainly won't figure that out for you. Um, maybe sometimes it will you know if you're if you just do you know plus one minus one plus one minus one it'll be smart enough to be like okay well you ended up at zero like it's not gonna (laughs) do all that needless addition in your code um but more complex operations that do the net result is something simple they they won't necessarily figure that out um and then and then shader forge in particular also still just does crap like it still just does things that are very very expensive under the hood so even if you make the most optimized you know use as few nodes as possible um it, it's still producing not optimal code gotcha yeah right on so you so you mentioned sort of like you know knowing you know how to write like sort of shader programs from like sort of the ground up versus using the node-based systems um which do you find more of people knowing? Like, did, did you run into a lot of people who actually know sort of the underlying code? And like, if they were, you know, given, say, hey, write this shader from scratch, you know, no visuals, no nothing, you've got Notepad, versus like the node-based people. Like, you know, what's what do you think the like breakdown is there about like how many people know know it from like the ground up versus only Node? I I would assume that more people know how to use. Um the node-based editors because uh, at most graphics engineers, they'll be able to do the node-based stuff and hand author it. But then the node-based stuff can also be done by artists. And so you'll have character artists, effects artists, et cetera, um, all able to author, you know, significantly complex uh, node diagrams generating interesting, cool shaders or whatever, um, which they, they certainly couldn't have written any of those by hand. So I, I have to imagine that there's a lot more people comfortable with a node-based flow. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense because it opens it up to like sort of maybe less technical people. Like you said, they don't have to like rip out what's behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. They can just, you know, from a visual standpoint, do that. Um, yeah, awesome. And do you like, do you think there's a perceived difficulty in learning like the sort of that ground up for, for like, you know, the engineer, let's say, who's maybe more comfortable with the nodes? You know, is there, do you see any sort of like perceived difficulty in learning those shader languages or? I def I definitely have seen that, and it sort of is the reason I started the YouTube videos. Um, running into all these def like you know competent C sharp programmers producing, um, you know doing A star pathfinding or or uh, map generation or, or tackling other hard problems, uh, but struggling to you know make pixels on the screen um, with with functions that are you know it, it's. Shader language is a C-like language that looks like any other code, but for some reason there, there seems to be this um, perceived difficulty in, in learning uh, to write shaders. 
Yeah, I think we talked about this a little. I guess at the office, um, you know, I I guess do you think it's that sort of like like separation or of the hardware layer, like knowing it's going to like run sort of on a separate piece of hardware, just like you know how you have the two separate programs essentially, like this, you know, and mm-hmm. you have a flow to it. Like here's your you know um, your geometry bit. Your um, I'm blanking on it. Uh, the vertex, you know, your, your vertex shader, your the, fragment shader. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> You think you know, um, that a lot of that, you know, goes into it? Yeah, possibly that. I think also maybe just the um, people are people are used to, or engineers rather, are used to seeing how their code, you know, looks and works on, on a CPU uh, and the order things happen. And some people are writing parallel code, you know, um, for networking or other or other reasons. But for the most part, we're we're not we're writing serial things that happen in a fixed order. Um, whereas in the GPU, you are you're effectively writing a program that is going to operate, you know, 10 million times uh, per fraction of a second. Uh, and that seems to contribute to the perceived difficulty that like you can just hand it, you know, oh, here's an arbitrary set of data, you know, produce tens of millions of tiny fragments. Uh, that That seems to really throw people off when they're first getting started. I mean, even that description kind of threw me off. You said tens of millions and I'm like, what? Sounds crazy. Well, whatever, uh, 1920 times 1080. That's not tens of million. I don't know. It's a big number. I'm, I'm curious. We're talking about, like, I guess the learning curve or, you know, getting started in graphics programming. I, I'm curious just your story. Like, how do you how did you get started with really, you know, diving deep into learning how to start, uh, program shaders or write yeah, GLCs? I'm, so. Hmm. Um, so so I, had, I had dabbled a tiny little bit with, uh, bloom shaders in XNA, um, and, and some and some sort of experimenting with additive versus alpha blending transparency for for making lights in an XNA game that is long since dead. Um, but but it wasn't until Unity that I I really you know I opened up and looked at shader code and just started to um, experiment. Really, I mean, people talk about like, oh, how, how did you first get in? How did you dive in? Oh, I don't know. I do- I dove in. <laughs> you know, right I just yeah. I just I just did it, and uh, you know, you fall hundreds of times, and you just keep get getting back up, and keep throwing your head against the keyboard at a shader, and. Uh, I don't know. Apparently, eventually, you'll learn something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's actually funny because when Hopefully. I first started trying to write some. Um, shader code it was it was actually really easy easy in the sense that it was like i could immediately see what i was creating i guess like mm-hmm. i could throw a texture or throw that script um you know shader script onto a game object and immediately see the effect of a certain change or line that i wrote without having to like to go through you know a whole startup of a game or you know killing something yeah. eight times that you test against something so it was really easy and, uh, and interesting to see how you know, certain, I guess, functions or how you change even like one function changes the whole, you know, outcome of a, a shader. So it was really interesting in seeing that. And that's what made, I guess, the the prospect of learning how to program shaders really interesting for me. Um, no, that's that's definitely true. I mean, U- Unity supports that. Their, their shader compiler runs and in, independently of, you know, compiling the rest of your source code, um, which which makes iteration time for that sort of testing and experimenting and learning really quick. You can just, you know, have your Unity window open on one side and your Visual Studio on the other and just, you know, prod some variables to try some things and then click back into Unity and your result pops up, you know, near instantaneously. It's It's a fantastic way to learn. Gotcha. So did you like pull out a bunch of books to study or did was it like really math heavy or was it just 
just playing around it and visually seeing things happen. Um, so I, I, I had the math background from my undergrad. Um, I, I had to take calculus and vectors. I had to take linear algebra. And then in my last year at university, I took this graphics course where we had this absolute badass of a professor, just <laughs> brilliant guy, um, taught a very, very challenging, but very rewarding course, um, which if you thought you knew linear algebra and you thought you knew how to multiply matrices, he kind of showed you that it wasn't just, you know, knowing how to write out all the numbers and do all the multiplications and additions. It, it was intuitively understanding what the result is going to look like when, you know, you take one set of vertex data and multiply it by a certain matrix. Um, so that, that's, that's where I really got my math background, uh, f for being able to do this stuff and, and kind of intuit, uh, that side of things. I haven't actually studied a lot. I, I didn't, you know, hit the books per se. Um, si since, um, since getting more into this uh, shader and rendering world, I, I have spent more time reading papers. I read SIGGRAPH papers and GDC uh, papers and talks and stuff like that. Um, but that's more just for, you know, kind of trying to keep up with cool new advanced techniques. And, you know, hope hopefully I can understand them all. But uh, sometimes they're Sometimes they have an even greater math background than I ever think I will have. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that can be tough sometimes. I mean, just keeping up with like you know, computing, gaming in general. It's like you, there's constantly stuff coming down the pipe, and then you start adding on top of that like math and research papers. <laughs> it's definitely a lot to take in, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So, um, like as far as like you know, when you were developing shaders, like, um, basically, you know, is there like how do you address it for PC versus mobile? Because, I mean, you know, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of things you can do on one platform that you can't on the other. Um, yes. So the the absolute answer and truth to, oh, how do I make sure I'm writing mobile optimized code or how do I make sure everything is going to work on, on the phone that I want it to work on? The real answer is to just try it. Um, and you know you, you'll run you'll run your piece of shader code and it looks fine in the editor and then you'll push it to the phone and it will be black or it'll be magenta and something will have broken um, and from that point it's diagnosing the issue is you know maybe using GPU profiling tools or or maybe sometimes it's going to mean going back to your shader code and like looking at it and thinking hmm what looks janky here what what do I not understand because that's probably the area that's breaking on mobile phones. Yeah, so you go through your code and you're like, oh, magic happens here, and then I yep. understand the rest, and it's like, oh wait, I better investigate this magic because <laughs> it's probably exactly right on. Yeah, well, you mentioned uh, GPU tool tools. Uh, I'm uh, curious, what what actual tools do you use? Like, what's what's your tool set for developing shaders and, and rendering work and all of, you know all of that? I guess wheelhouse of of graphics <laughs> programming. What's um, your go to to tool set? So for, for Working uh, in Unity, the frame debugger is a pretty powerful tool. Um, it's a window that I, I find a lot of people, even people who have been working in Unity for um, you know two or three years or something, it's just a window they've never even opened before and they've never stepped through. Certainly when I started working at Sprockets, it seemed that every engineer was like, whoa, this exists? Um, so the frame debugger is very interesting in, in that it'll show you each individual draw call as it's happening. Um, and, and it'll also, uh, if you're doing something that's multi-pass for, for a post-processing effect, uh, for example, when you're writing Bloom, first you'll, you'll grab the brightness values, then you'll blur the result, and then you'll add that back. Well, in the frame debugger, you can see all three steps happening one at a time. 
Um, and you, you'll see, you can see that like, oh, okay, so I see that my brightness is happening, but when my, when my bloom happens, it doesn't look quite right. And you can try and diagnose it, uh, visually. And a lot of it is visual, visual debugging of seeing the result and, um, understanding why what you expected is not what you're seeing. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that thing's pretty fun just to scrub through to and watch a whole like frame be created. You're just like, ooh, this is neat. Yeah, you know? <laughs> it's like that complete atomic process. It's almost ow, stop. Yeah, if you if you've never if you've never opened the frame debugger uh, before, de- debug loungers, um, go, go ahead and open that up in one of your projects and just just scrub through it and see what your frame looks like. You'll be surprised at, at things that uh, you'll see rendering inefficiencies or or weird things that you didn't understand. You'll see the shadow map be rendered if you've never seen what a shadow map looks like. There's a lot of interesting stuff that you'll you'll learn about just from uh, seeing the rendering of a frame from beginning to end. Cool, right on. Um, so like in your work using, uh, using these tools, uh, like what's your approach to creating a new visual effect? Like on your, on your YouTube channel, making stuff look good. You you sort of have a process. It seems for like, you know, breaking down, say if you see something you want to recreate, uh, you know, you have a sort of a nice process for doing that. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Um, yeah, uh, let's, I guess, I guess I'll go by example. Um, and, and I'll, I'll refer to the the Winston's uh, bubble effect. Um, so when, when, yeah, Winston from Overwatch. Uh, if you haven't played, he has this this bubble shield. He drops it on the ground, and then it's uh, got this kind of radiating hexagon pattern, and it's blue and it's glowy. Um, but the really interesting thing it does is that wherever he places it in the ground, um, wherever the bubble intersects with other geometry, it has this glowing white line. Um, and so basically when i first saw this effect i i knew it couldn't i knew they weren't dynamically generating um a mesh to fit that um because you you can drop the bubble in midair for example and you'll see it as it passes through that that edge is constantly updating and well there's no way that they're constantly reconstructing this mesh uh, I mean, I guess, I guess they could have been, but th- they weren't. <laughs> um, and and also, better than I, I, that. <laughs> uh, I also I also knew just from reading up on on how uh, their rendering tech works. I, I knew that that game was done in deferred rendering, which we can get into the difference between forward and deferred later if we want. But um, so, so so I basically knew that it was probably an effect that uh, was leveraging. Um, the depth information of the scene to generate that. Uh, and so from there, I started, well, okay, let's open up a Unity project. Let's make a big sphere. Uh, we'll dra- drop on a, a fresh shader, you know, right-click, new, unlit shader, or whatever, and drop that on the object. Um, let's, ma- let's get the depth, you know, let's turn on deferred mode or get get a depth texture available to me and and then just start experimenting, try- trying to recreate that that edge and trying to how how fine that edge is how how uh, close it sits to the object it's on versus how much uh, the tail feathers off and things like that. Um, I, it, it certainly is a trial and error process. I'm I'm actually doing another video right now covering an effect from uh, Dishonored Two, which has just been completely racking my brain. Um, <laughs> and and it's honestly and I've thrown myself at it a couple times and it bounced off and failed. And it wasn't until like my fourth attempt. Uh, at tackling the effect that I was like, okay, I'm, I'm hitting on what, what they've accomplished. Uh, I'm hitting a visual target that's similar to what they had in that game. <clears throat> oh, right on. 
Yeah, yeah, like I'm sure they probably did that too. I would imagine. Is I'm, you know, I doubt those things are like pumped out in like the yeah. first try at a studio, as you can probably I'd attest. Surprised. To. I'd be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Oh, go ahead, Omira. Yeah, I just had a couple quick questions. Uh, first was you mentioned forward and deferred uh, rendering. Mm-hmm. Could you go into that and see, uh, to just explain like what those processes are and how they differ? Sure. Um, so forward rendering is the traditional approach that. Um, has been used since um, the the dawn of time, the dawn of 3D games, um, so to speak. And uh, in forward, it means every single object is just drawn, in theory, is going to be drawn once. Uh, uh, every pixel they output is going to be fully shaded, and it is going to look the way it will look on the final uh, view of the screen, um, not not including image effects or what have you, uh, and, and so it's it's exactly what you, if you step through a frame debugger in a default Unity project, it's what you'll see: objects being drawn one at a time, um, at looking like they will eventually look on the screen. Deferred, on the other hand, is a much more complex sort of. Um, uh, it was popular in the past five years, but starting to fall out of popularity or be mixed with traditional forward rendering to sort of bring it up in speed. Um, but essentially what you do is you you leverage this uh, technology called multiple render targets where instead of just rendering to one screen the final the the final image uh you render to four screens simultaneously these sort of uh you know meta screens that you don't actually ever see uh called g buffers um that contain all sorts of data i say i say four g buffers you you can have an arbitrary number of them really um but they but they'll store things like um the screen space normals to so you can later on figure out how light should bounce off the pixel they'll store the original um albedo color the one that you sample from your texture um they'll store the specular highlights they'll store uh emissive for objects that glow or or have light coming off of them um and all kinds of uh, oh and depth as well is typically one of your g buffers um so all this is loaded into these four textures and then we do one final kind of sort of like an image effect reading from those four uh those four textures to create the final composite image. Um, it has a lot of <laughs> uh, complexities, as it probably alluded to from that vague description, <laughs> um, and and it, and it's not without drawbacks. Um, I'm I'm actually almost entirely blanking on the the real positives of <laughs> of <laughs> deferred the at the moment. The positives of yeah. uh, deferred, of deferred well, rendering. The, well, are the I, and I'm not very familiar with this, so I may be putting my foot in my mouth. But um, like sort of the positives, I guess. Like you have those like x amount of meta panels saying like, oh, I've got all of my depth data at once, all of my specular data at once. Does that mm-hmm. allow for a greater flexibility of effects? Like now you can reference yes. this data instead of it being like, say, you're working on like this first pixel or whatever, and it's like, well, you know, th- that data may be wiped or it's, it's harder to reference in forward rendering for like yeah. say more full screen effects. That 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 that's definitely part of it um you know you usually only have your red green and blue and maybe you're you're being clever with the alpha when you do your forward rendering um but that's all you have available to you and that's that's the final way it's going to look on the screen and and of course the the other big thing that i i'm now realizing is deferred rendering is actually um it's it's an attempt to make lighting simplified uh in forward rendering when you want to have an object lit by four different point lights or directional lights even typically the approaches draw the object four times with additive passes uh whereas in deferred rendering what you can do is once you have all those buffers set up the g buffers um you can do your lights sort of per pixel you can kind of calculate um, all your lights at once applied to the whole stack of images rather than having to um 
redraw all those objects multiple times, which if you're drawing, you know, a character that's very advanced, 50,000, 100,000 polygons, some crazy AAA character, you probably don't want to be redrawing them um, three, four times for all the different lightings, uh, lights in the scene. So hmm. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. yeah it does. Cool. Uh, so all of this talk has actually got me thinking of another question about uh, not the perceived difficulty of learning changes, but just like the ideal, I guess, background for an individual trying to get into graphics programming. Uh, like the, to, to me, it sounds like it, you could come from like a very artsy or visual, I guess, keen background, um, or you could be like a math a math wizard like yourself <laughs> or just like oh, the, I wouldn't say that <laughs> or just math like a magician, yeah, math magician. <laughs> just a generic, uh, I guess, engineer. Yeah. Do you, do you personally feel like there is a one, um, I guess one route over the others that would like make the optimal or make the, I guess the ideal situation for learning graphics programming or just things, I guess the general course load that would be ideal for it. it it's, it's hard to say. Um, whether whether an art background or an engineering background um, better equips you, probably engineering, just because um, you know we're already talking about the perceived difficulty of you know learning to write shader code. If you well, if you can't even read and write C like language code, mm-hmm. uh, well then you're 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 in a tough spot to get started in uh, in shaders. Um, you, you might have a better um, better opportunities with like a node based workflow. Um, it, I actually had this conversation um, just the other day at Sprockets. Uh, this past week, an, uh, an artist and I talked about his background as an artist and how he's learned to write shaders and my background as an engineer and how I've learned to write shaders. Uh, and we're both definitely at um, similar levels and, uh, and understanding, but there are time, times where my engineering background kind of gets me to a solution faster and where his artist background gets him to a solution faster. So mm-hmm. um, I, don't, I don't know that there is a, a perfect blend of of um art versus engineering here but but there but there definitely is a blend you you should either be an engineer who's interested in art um you've maybe dabbled in 3d modeling or or drawing pixel art even or, or anything you have some interest in art and wanting to produce art or you have to be a, an artist who's interested in the engineering side who's interested in actually writing rendering code uh True. and and either one is a good a good fit for the uh for the role i think gotcha cool so- and, and- I was just going to real quick. So to spin it another way, is there anything on your path you look back at and it's like, wow, maybe I should have gotten to that sooner or maybe I should have, like I had a little bit of a gap here and that was really helpful once I filled it. Hmm. Um, or did you do I, I do wish I was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was born this way. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do wish I was more familiar with um, the sort of the tools used for next gen uh, 3D assets so um, Maya or 3D's Max, um, uh, Substance Designer, Substance Painter, ZBrush. Um, you know, I understand that the artists who are using those at AAA companies, they, they not only went to school for it, but have been using them on big fancy Centrino tablets or whatever for years and uh, Wacom tablets or whatever, um, producing beautiful 3D sculptures and stuff like that. And I, I don't want to have had that expertise, but I would like to have maybe spent more time in the art side of things to uh, have a better understanding of what those workflows are like. Um, if only so I can work better with, with artists who are more familiar in those environments. Right. I guess it helps you know sort of the pipeline, right? And this is yeah. what they're going to output. And, you know, here's how I may pull it into the game or how I may have to deal with it. I guess something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So speaking of like working with artists and, and engineers and I guess just working in the team, 
uh, outs- I guess outside of the workflow, have you ever found yourself like struggling to figure out? Because e- even referencing how you, you re- usually build out some of your, I guess you do like test cases or shader cases for your YouTube series. Mm-hmm. And like looking at a, a particular, I guess, effect in a game and then trying to figure out how to reproduce that, you know, through shaders. Is there? Do you ever find a pl- time where you're like, you may not just see it, like visually see what's going on? Or is it, is there a different approach that you take mentally and how you approach those kind of, I guess, tasks? Is it just like, oh, I could, I see how these pixels are working? Or is it sometimes you need to call in an artist to say, hey, can you describe what's happening here? Um. You you definitely you definitely have to do that. I certainly do. And and if somebody's out there and they're a graphics engineer where they can just look at anything and be like, oh, I know how to make that. Well, then they're they're a genius and they're they <laughs> they should be working at a AAA company making beautiful games. Um, but you certainly, I, I find it's very helpful to have uh, not just a still image, um, but it, if if there isn't already some some three D rendering of of the effect being done in real time to use as as a source, uh, it's nice to have an animatic where somebody has put in some sort of animation or like this is sort of what I want the effect to look like. I put this together in After Effects or or you know a series of Photoshop images uh, showing the effect over time, um, because sometimes it, it you know it's hard to just see a a still image and be like, well, here's how they did it. Cause it's like, well, as far as I know, that was all done in post, and you know this is impossible to achieve in a real time environment <laughs> yeah in which case also go work for a triple th- a company around <laughs> e3 time and it'll be very useful yeah. <laughs> oh, a little bit of a jab <laughs> so so i guess uh just to i guess keep on that one a little bit and just saying is that is that your ideal i guess requirements when you look at a new piece of art is it like hey i prefer like an animatic or i prefer a series of images i guess what helps you do your job better when it comes from when it comes to dealing with other artists or dealing with you know other engineers um there are workflows other than than animatics at work i i have um i have worked back and forth with an artist before where we would just basically constantly send each other um gifs and um uh, still images and things like that back and forth saying like, okay, how does this look? How do, how do you like this? And just kind of uh, really refining the look of a certain character shader or something like that. Uh, what 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 is helpful actually there, um, ShaderForge, while it doesn't produce the most optimal code, um, can be a great way for an artist to express something that they want, um, which is clearly obtainable in real time because it's a, ShaderForge is, you know, real time for all its not optimized uh, imperfections. Um, and so you can actually be handed even a node diagram in, in some editor like ShaderForge and then from there derive the more efficient path uh, or, or a different way of creating the same or similar effect. Um, so that, that's also a very powerful workflow. Cool. All right, Dan, so uh, what's, what would you say one of your favorite visual effects you've ever created is? Oh, that's that's tough. Hmm. We ask the tough questions. <laughs> um, well, it, it's gonna sound like a cop out, or that I'm just trying to get free free promotion for myself. But it's actually, I think, the effect I'm working on now, which will be released in a in a video, hopefully next hopefully next week or this week, um, is actually one certainly one of the, my favorite things I've I've ever really done. Um, uh, I, I can I can get a little bit uh, more specific um, for for people who have played Dishonored Two. Um, there's a, a level called Crack in the Slab, um, 
where your character has this this timepiece um, that lets them warp uh, between the past and the present. Um, but while while you're in either the past or the present, the little timepiece in your hand has these sort of glass mirror shards uh, sticking up out of it, uh, and they show um, they, they show through them the the past or the present, depending on where you are, uh, in this very visually cool way. So you know you can look at this sort of ruined uh, sofa or chair or something in in the in the present, uh, and then you can you know open up the timepiece, and as you look through it, you'll see the way that chair used to look. Um, you know, all beautifully lit and nice and, um, the upholstery is not ripped apart and stuff like that. Um, and sort of tackling this effect has been both challenging, uh, because I don't think unity was not built (laughs) to do this effect. I'm sure that, uh, uh, Bethesda's engine was probably either more limiting or this was just a very pain in the ass thing for them to pull off. Um, uh, so this is actually probably my favorite effect I've written, and I look forward to showing people hopefully soon. <laughs> awesome! Nice. No, it's, it sounds really cool. I've seen those type of effects before, and they're they're really fun. Like you said, visually interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, I think I may know where this answer is going, but uh, what was the most difficult effect you've ever had to try to create? <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So th- this effect has been has been difficult because I've been fighting with Unity. Um, for for many things um it, it's difficult to say you know to do this effect effect you're going to have uh two worlds sort of sitting on top of each other you know universe a and universe b um and they have to both have you know light maps and and reflection uh probes and things like that which unity doesn't it doesn't want you to have two pieces of identical geometry sitting on top of each other with different sampling different reflection maps and different uh, uh light maps so there's been some difficulties there, but I'm I'm working out the kinks and it's uh it's coming along. <laughs> Interesting. Well, speaking of like just working with Unity and, and battling Unity, have you ever found instances where you have to like contact Unity uh, or Unity support about you know some shader issue or, or some I guess aspect of their engine that makes writing a particular shader like not feasible? I hmm I haven't really contacted them. For that reason, I have called them out before on on Twitter. I've called out their engineers and said, "Like, why aren't you? Why aren't you doing this?" Yeah, um, I, I've done, I've certainly done that before. Um, but for the most part, uh, if if you really want to get into Unity shader code, or sorry, once you're once you're into it, once you're past the basics and and really starting to drill down. Um, you end up going into all their their CG include files. They're sort of pre-assembled um, functions and macros and stuff that are kind of buried in the depths of Unity. And oh my God, when you start reading those, it's there's there are there's like ten thousand lines of code, more maybe twenty thousand that you can just read for days to understand how they're actually doing everything under the hood. Um, and what like once you read read all that for fun or for other reasons. <laughs> Uh, you have you'll have fewer, much fewer questions because um, it, it kind of breaks down the black box a little bit of oh, how is this shader authored? Well, you can go look, and then you won't have to contact Unity. You'll just have to deal with the fact that it's a crazy, complicated mess. <laughs> Yeah, I guess sometimes it has to be like you know. With the, I'm, I'm wondering if the, like, do you think the multiple platform bit is probably what gets them a lot with that? Is it just like that? Maybe what adds to that complexity? Um, po- possibly. I I know that their shader compiler is definitely it's it, it's a it's a tool you can't um you can't 
undervalue because you you can't actually there isn't one unified language that lets you write um DirectX shaders and OpenGL shaders at the same time. But from your perspective as a Unity shader author, it that that is the case. You know, they, they're doing all sorts of magic compilation tricks to get it to work on two platforms, um, and that might that might add to some complexities. Um, you know, if you kind of follow the code paths, it, it'll go down these routes of like, wait, why do they do this? Why is this happening? And sometimes there will be comments saying that like, this is to support uh, DX9 or this breaks on OpenGLS2 if you don't do it like this. But other times there won't be those comments. And then it's just, uh, you're back into that black box of not knowing what the hell's going on anymore. <laughs> oh, so it's got like a bunch of, yeah. I've seen that in other code too, where you start getting into all these compile directives for different versions oh, yes. of the say windows or unix or whatever the hell you're on and it just becomes a sort of spaghettified mess that they're like yeah it, it all works but it's you feel like it's held together with duct tape sometimes <laughs> a little bit yeah cool so dan uh were there any final words of wisdom you would like to give to our audience as far as being a graphics programmer um final words of wisdom well if you're inter- if it interests you at all and and you you you're thinking about doubling down on on learning shaders and stuff i i can't recommend it high enough because if you are looking to get if you're not currently uh professionally employed in the games industry and that and that's something you've always dreamed of doing um you you're definitely in demand as a graphics programmer a graphics engineer um and you'll you'll definitely you'll you'll be able to find a job at a, at a really cool place like like i did at sparkets <laughs> um uh, if you take this path, so do it. <laughs> Dive in. <laughs> yeah, I've dabbled, and I agree, it's a lot of fun. So yeah. cool. Yeah. Well. Uh, oh, Dan, would you like to plug uh, your YouTube channel? And, oh like, yes. Or anything okay. Else yes. That uh, let's do. Let's do that. So so yes, I I run the the YouTube channel, uh, the, which I've recently renamed from uh, making stuff look good in Unity to making stuff look good in video games. Um, the generic title was just to attract more developers and make it make it not feel like it was very Unity specific, even though I do use Unity. Um, so go ahead and check, check out my stuff. If you're interested in there's sort of beginner tutorials, uh, and then ranging to more advanced stuff like the, the case studies of how, uh, you know, Winston's bubble works or, um, how, uh, no man's skies, uh, scanner effect, um, works and things like Hearthstone, that. Hearthstone. Uh, oh, no, Hearthstone, Hearthstone's golden cards. That was a, that was a fun one. That was a good one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely, uh, check that out if you're interested. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at Daniel J. Moran. Uh, I tweet lots of, uh, small, uh, gifts and images of things, you know, things that will never make it to YouTube or never make it to my GitHub or anything that are just, uh, you know, little small visual experiments, uh, in shader code. <clears throat> and Pusheen, I'm sure. Right. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan, Hey, it was great. And we really thank you for being on the show. Um, and hopefully we can come back and talk about to it, uh, about us. That I'll get these words us. out eventually. <laughs> yeah, I totally just, come my talk about kept us. tripping. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we hope you can come back and talk about us about graphics again in the future, man. It was great. Sure, it was yeah, amazing. Thanks for, thanks, for, guys. thanks for coming, Dan. Thanks. Right on. And we're back after uh, 
I thought it was a great, an absolutely great talk. It was a lot of information. He dropped a lot of knowledge. Oh, yeah. Uh, Dan did about like graphics programming, about what he did to get started, you know, his mentality around programming, uh, you know, shaders, and even about his show and just like how that's kind of was like the jump off point and where he, you know, he was on Reddit and just found a lot of developers didn't really, you know, know what. Yeah, I guess I guess they had these or misconceptions about what shader programming right. what that was all about. So, nah, it's it's very cool because it, you know kind of somewhat paralleled uh, our story a little bit where you know he's you know That's true. kind of you know went around just saw started talking to developers and, you know saw there was a community for it and that you know there could be maybe some more communication a little more knowledge sharing and uh, you know so we decided to create our show and like it, it pretty much the same way he created his which is um that you know been been very informative to me i went over there and like checked out a few of those videos obviously and you know it they're great so definitely recommend you check them out gotcha. and again that is um making stuff look good uh on in video games or something in video oh, games. Yeah, yeah, that's right. making stuff <laughs> yeah he renamed it now games. yeah but yeah cool uh so yeah that was a i think it was a great show um so anyway, if you guys want to get in on this community that Brian was just talking about, you can join our Facebook group, which is the Debug Lounge. Um, again, that's just a community on uh, on Facebook where we just talk about our journey as developers. You know, we talk about our past, our failures, our, our successes, our what we're doing now. You know, we do like our screenshot Saturday. So it's a, it's a really great community where you can just come and share your story and meet new people who do the exact same things and enjoy the feel that you do. Uh, we also have our Debug Lounge show YouTube series, which you can find on YouTube uh, just by searching the Debug Lounge. Uh, I think we're on episode... Uh, what episode are we on now? I think it's like... I think it's up to, is it up to 19 or 20? No, no, no. I think it's like nine. <laughs> it's nine. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, but they come out every every Friday, every other Friday. Uh, but yeah, really good stuff. We talk about a lot of... I think we've been doing our like Unite series so far, but a lot of good stuff, a lot of good information. Anyway. Yeah, sorry about that. I have a disease where I add 10 to everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. Anyway, if you want to reach us on Twitter, where can they find you, Ryan? They can find me at, at R.E. Kilgore. That's K-I-L-L-G-O-R-E. And I am at O-Beans. That's O with an H. Beans with a Z. And that's us. Oh, yes. <laughs> Peace. Thanks, everyone. Peace.